0: O Heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, for our table, we are present and fill all things, treasure, blessings, and giver of life. Come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls a good one. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So we have coming up a uh, major fast of the church, the Nativity Fast that starts this Tuesday. Uh, someone had asked a question and I always... If someone asks a question, that more than likely means others have questions about it. So the typical fast throughout the year for Orthodox Christians is Wednesdays and Fridays. There's people trying to come in, Frank. Oh. Can you just come up here? I will move up here. I'll
1: actually come the other door. I'll just wait.
0: so the nativity fast begins this tuesday uh this is a 40-day fast for preparation for the nativity of our lord christmas uh this uh is in many ways kind of a mini lint uh it's one of the larger right it mirrors the linton fast although if you actually sat down and counted how many days you're fasting uh with lint uh You'd think that counts Holy Week, and you think that counts the week before Lent, but it doesn't. So you're actually fasting more than 40 days with Lent. Uh, The Nativity Fast uh, is an intensification, right? It is a lesser fast than the Great Fast of Lent. Uh, Historically, the Great Fast uh, Lent was the preparatory. This is where the catechumens were taught. This is where... It was all uh, going up into uh, Pascha, Easter, where all of those who are to be received into the church, uh, illumined by baptism, uh, they've been prepared the whole way there during that time. Uh, Over time, the church has had other fasts. You see very early in the church, uh, in the Didache, Jesus assumes fasting in the Sermon on the Mount uh that christians fasted on wednesdays and fridays so on a typical week throughout the year wednesday and friday is a fast day for sake of brevity without getting into great details that basically is no meat no dairy uh that uh there's a few weeks where that's not the case like after Pascha, after christmas after um Pentecost, there are these, and then there's also uh, right before Lent, because we're not going to fast like the Pharisees, right? Then we eliminate, basically, the Wednesday and Friday fast. As I've been talking about with orthodoxy, it's not just a bunch of ideas you get in your head, right? It is something that starts to inform and shape your heart and your practices, which you actually do with your time, your money, uh, your dedication, your attention, so fasting is one of those things uh, I kind of joke about. It also changes the directions or maybe some uh, rows in the grocery store. You wouldn't go down, right? Because you're functionally a vegan half the year and the fasting of the church. Uh, so in saying this, this adjustment takes time. This might be one of the hardest adjustments over time. Because what do Americans eat? Meat meat and cheese, right? <laughs> if it's not meat, it's cheese. <laughs> and if it's more meat, then it's just a whole lot more cheese on it, right? <laughs> uh, we love that stuff. And it's only in the modern world with the way that we do farming and etc. Do you have access to that much? Uh, I had a friend uh, in seminary from Uganda. Do you know how often they eat meat? Christmas and Easter. A goat. That's it. They ate beans and rice and maybe one other thing through the year, right? That is their sustenance. So we had a lot of interesting conversations about fasting in Africa, but that's a whole other (laughs) topic. Uh, Part of the challenge for us is because we eat abnormally compared to any other culture historically, right? We all know this because we feel it, right? The reality of the fast, and so there's many dimensions to this. There is obviously a spiritual, the the most important thing is the spiritual dimension of it. But as we've talked about, and as you're encountering orthodoxy, spirituality is not just ideas or pious feelings, it's also what you actually do. So fasting uh, requires a sacrifice, especially if you're used to bacon and eggs every single morning. You probably, if you're young, that works. I don't know if that's gonna last forever for you to be able to eat like that. But to get used to a different pattern of eating, there's different ways of approaching fasting. It's not, and the Father's talk about this, it comes up in the hymnody, especially once we get to Lent. There's a lot of hymns. It's like, great, you're not eating, this is my rendition, (laughs) recent recent (laughs) translation here, okay? Great! You're not eating meat and dairy, good you, but you're destroying and eating your brother, right? Like, that's not the point of the fast. I think I told you about the Chekhov story about, like, the parents who are, like, following the fast, they end up, like, killing the child because they're not following the fast. It's a a typical Russian story. I don't think Chekhov is Ukrainian, but that's a whole other thing. That's a whole other thing. (laughs) So, the reality of fasting is uh, not just not eating something, right? It is a rebooting of your entire way of relating to the created world. Because how much we just eat stuff. I'm not mindless eating, but even we sit down, we might say thank you, and then we're just like, right? Uh, We don't even think about the animals that were killed in order for us to be able to eat (laughs) that much meat, right? And we've lost all touch with even where this comes from in the first place. So part of what fasting does is recalibrate our relationship to creation so that it recalibrates our relationship to God. You will realize if you embrace the fullness of the fast, or even just a shadow of the fullness of the fast, how much you depend on food to just get through stuff. Your emotions, your feelings, Ups, downs, all of it, right? Children. What'd you say? You're children. You're
2: children. <laughs> That's what alcohol is for. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: but once you see what, what fasting does is it allows you in a way to step back from yourself, just like prayer is supposed to, just like almsgiving is supposed to make you step back from money and be like, this isn't really mine. This is God's. Uh, this food, like, thank God <laughs> I have food. And you, especially if you embrace the fast, uh, even aspects of the fast, you're going to come back once it's over and be like, whoa, food. I want to give you a pointer. I'm probably going to repeat this in Lent. But when, if you, especially if you go full with the, the Lenten fast and you get to Pascha, you need to be careful. This is practical 101, 101 advice here. You're, if you have not been eating meat and dairy for 60, 70 days and then you get to Pascha and you're just like, Hello! <laughs> <laughs> it ain't going to be fun, okay? So, yogurt, Pepto-Bismol, <laughs> <laughs> uh, other things. Or, actually, the advice of the church, and this comes to in a lot of homilies, is we keep the feast spiritually. It's like, we learn how to keep it spiritually. We are... are Especially, I think you get the fourth or fifth week of Lent, and this is going to happen with the nativity fast, especially because we're surrounded by uh, the nativity. Do we need more chairs? More air. <laughs> more air? I also still have the seat. I never turned the air on today.
2: But yes, we need more, we need more room.
1: Yeah. I would love it. I'll, I'll, or, I'll some order some more room. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we can knock out that wall right there. Yeah. <laughs>
0: the nursing mothers would love that. Um... So, the most important thing, and the fathers talk about this, if you're going to embrace the fast, you need to embrace prayer and almsgiving. They go together, right? Uh, a lot of the fathers will talk about when you embrace fasting, uh, again, Jesus assumes that we're doing this, right? When you fast, when you pray, when you give alms, right? Like, this is assumed that you're doing this. This was the ancient Jewish way of doing things the early church that's what they did you your prayer has to be and the fathers are talk about almsgiving is and fasting is like giving wings to prayer on some degree, you're like I don't really understand that if you do it you'll understand there is part of the wisdom of the church part of wisdom in general who of us growing up and like yeah dad <laughs> yeah mom and then 10 years later you're like the same things are coming out of your mouth, right? <laughs> like This is the wisdom of the church. He tells you something that you think you might know better, but the reality is you actually do need to attend to it. So many of you, I'm going to guess, are brand new to Orthodox fasting. Maybe picked up a little bit here and there with Wednesdays and Fridays, or at least trying. It's going to take some time. Uh, the whole point of this, there's a pastoral element to this. You don't, if you want to talk to me and say like, this is what we're thinking, I'm like, sure. Because folks are like, we're gonna do the full fast. I'm like, okay, you've <laughs> never done it before? You have kids?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> little bit by little bit, right? It's okay for you to have to like a, a marathon. I'm not gonna go out and run a marathon in two days, right? Why? Well, I don't really like running, but two, <laughs> I haven't prepared to run a marathon at all, right? So there's no way I'm gonna do it. I wouldn't even, I probably wouldn't show up because I'd be like, I didn't prepare, I'll eat something instead. (laughs) Fasting, so let me give some examples. In the early church, there was a lot of variety of fasting going around. Uh, You all have heard of Ramadan, right? That was our way of fasting before too. There was a lot of varieties of fasting uh, in Orthodox, uh, in Christian cultures. Uh, You have some, and you'll even see variety in monasteries. So I just went to Holy Cross Monastery a few weeks ago in West Virginia, and you have monks at different places in life, and they are eating different things. Some of them, I would say, a little bit more healthier, and some not as healthy. The healthier ones are usually the older ones, because the doctors say you can't eat X, Y, and Z, and the young ones are like, let me eat as much bread as possible, okay? So the reality, even in monasteries, because I think sometimes we get in our head, we have to do it like this, Or we go to the other extreme. I'm not a monk, or this is ascetical stuff. That's for the birds. I like the liturgy. Incense is cool. Icons are cool. I like the theology. So here I am. Right? Like, meet in the middle. It is better for you to do something like fasting for half the day and then having a normal meal for dinner. Right? So maybe you fast for the day and then eat a normal meal. Some people, they can't do that. Blood sugar, whatever there are others, the first two meals of the day, no meat, no dairy. Dinner, when the whole family is together and you got kids, then that's the time you do some meat and some dairy. And maybe one of you is like, I want to fully embrace the fast. And so you refrain, maybe you make a little something else. This also gets challenging with families, right? Make two different complete meals. Mm -hmm. That's besides the budget, and part of the idea is that you're actually eating less, right? And that and that money that you're saving, that's something that you give for alms, right? That's the way the fathers talking about this. So there's all sorts of different configurations. Maybe you just pick up, we're gonna do Mondays a strict fast, Wednesday's a strict fast, Friday is a strict fast. And in a few years or a year or two, right, you have some goal. Like next uh, this Lent, We're going to try a little bit more because it's really practically speaking. How many of you have enough vegan (laughs) meals in your recipe book that you actually want to eat? (laughs) (laughs) I know maybe one, two families have at least enough to get it through a few weeks, right? Uh, The reality is this is going to take time, right? You're going to find things that you enjoy to eat. If there's other situations where folks are in mixed households what i mean by mixed household is you're the only one practicing orthodoxy there then you've got to figure that out right maybe you have your breakfast to yourself and lunch to yourself fast on those when you come together with the rest of the family just eat what's there okay this is the point of this is not for you to feel really great about yourself right to i'm orthodox so i fast the point is to increase faith in God, (laughs) prayer to God, and orientation towards God, right? By a practical spiritual discipline. It's not made to make you be thrown into despair because you can't do it perfectly. It's not there to prove that you're macho man savage with the fast, right? (laughs) Yes. So it's not
2: legalistic.
0: It's not legalistic, but again, We're Americans. So what do we, 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 a lot of us don't necessarily struggle with legalistic application. We love to give as many but, ands, ifs, or whatevers to the fast. So I'm not saying let's cut it down to where you're doing a little, like, try, challenge yourself, do it, take it in a week at a time. That's probably what it's going to be in going Mm -hmm. to the grocery store in the first place, Right. You're going to become buddies with hummus. <laughs> Beans that you didn't know existed. Uh, salads. I mean, there is a lot of things. Mm-hmm. There is a wealth of resources. I think at some point during this fast, we're going to do a kind of practical like recipe swap, right? Like, it, what's great about the nativity fast? Soups. Lots of soups. Eat fresh vegetables. <laughs> Fruit. Like, all of these things work. Here's the other thing. You can also not keep the fast by being strictly keeping the fast and gorging yourself. Oreos are fast-friendly cookies. So we are saying, this so is lobster. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tofu, I mean, you can go, like, right? You can spend $75 at a dinner for one mm-hmm. and be completely following the fast. Well, in the mind of the fathers, you're not actually keeping the fast. You are keeping the letter of the law, but you are not keeping the spirit, right? Uh, it would be better if you you go out to eat with. Okay, this is the season we're coming up on it. If it doesn't already start, the whole world starts celebrating Christmas like two months, like after Halloween, right? We're not even it's Thanksgiving. Like we're so already in Christmas, right? And then Christmas happens, and then what happens the next day?
2: Valentine's Day.
0: <laughs> we're done with Christmas. The church doesn't have that mind. Christmas starts on Christmas. And then we have a Feast of Christmas. And then for the Orthodox Church, historically, actually, we kept the Feast of Theophany, the baptism of the Lord, at a greater uh, solemnity, uh, joy, and commemoration than Christmas because we actually had them run together. We added Christmas in, like, the 4th century. Chrysostom talks about why they started doing this. But what you see is that we have this period of time this is where you get the ham out, right? This is where you then have a part and you're rejoicing in the feast of Christmas. 12 days of Christmas, my true love, like all that stuff that we got little, fr- fat, uh, little fragments of. We don't really have 12 days of Christmas in Orthodoxy, but we can kind of do that. But needless to say, if you have specific questions, just ask me uh, and come up with something to there. <laughs> of all the times, uh, <laughs> uh, but don't don't try experiment. Don't lose prayer. Don't lose sleep about it. But if you need help with guidance about it, just ask. Okay, shoot me an email. Catch me at Coffee Hour. All right, I think I've talked enough about...
2: Yeah, I think I'm done. ...fasting. <laughs> I think we're done with class, thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Could I make a quick announcement before we move yep, to Father yep. Raphael's? Um, I'm going to the monastery this week. I'm going up on Wednesday and seeing the rest of the week. So if there are prayers you want me to take along, please let me know. Um, the, the monks there, they don't just say they'll pray for you. They really do. Mm-hmm. So if there are prayer requests you need to take along, just uh, email me.
0: I've been there when they do the commemorations, and they ask me to help, because there's
2: that stacks one? of <laughs>
0: commemorations.
2: All right. Well, it was a good thing this is a short chapter. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm doing you a solid Yeah, party. you are. <laughs> um, so I think I might have the easiest chapter so far, because um, it's just all very straightforward. There's almost no theology in this chapter, it seemed like to me. Very little, anyway. Um, it was all just practical stuff. So before we kind of pick and choose, where we're going to go, does anybody have any questions about the chapter specifically? This was the into the sanctuary about the pre uh, the preparation that the clergy priests and deacon make before they before liturgy. Does anybody have any questions just from the reading?
1: Okay, excellent.
2: Um, so I wanted to. Use that as a little bit of a jumping off point. I want to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that Frederica mentions in the book and kind of use that as a jumping off point as well. So um, I think this was covered in like each of the, like, the, the, the men's study group and the women's study group. I think this question came up like at the very first time both of those groups met. And it was about the antimons. You remember the antimons that she describes in here? Were any of you get at those study groups on Saturday when Father brought... Okay, did he bring it out? I can't remember if he actually brought it out or not. He did for us. He did for you. Okay. Um, if you Google antimons I don't have a picture here, but You can find a picture of it. Um, so, it, it's it's up there on the altar underneath the gospel, just like she says. Um, she, I think in the chapter mentions, if you look at the altar, you'll see a white cloth. Ours right now is red. I think it usually is red here. Um, so, when the doors are open... Actually, when the doors are open, it's, the red cloth is already taken off. But you'll see the altar, or see the the gospel book on the altar, and then underneath that, there's a fabric folded up, and and that's the, um, it's I can't remember the name of it. It's the there's a there's an antimens, and then it's folded up in another cloth, right? And they're all folded up together, and then all of the preparation for communion after the great entrance takes place on that antimens, okay? Um, so, and I don't remember if she talked about that here, but the, the, and I know Father talked about it in those groups, but that the, the kind of origin of this comes from the early church doing their liturgies literally in the catacombs on the relics of the saints, right, the martyrs. That's where they were celebrating the liturgy. And so to this day, we still celebrate the liturgy on the relics of saints. Um, I couldn't tell you who the saint is that we have a relic of in our antonyms, but um, there is one sewn into the corner. Um, so she talks about that and how then um, that, that it, is, it is essentially the Antimens, which um, it's easy just to think about as like the tablecloth or whatever but it really is a document um, ours is signed by Archbishop Dimitri we haven't gotten a new one since well a few years but, and it says for, I think it actually says Knoxville but kind of put in parentheses Greater Knoxville Um, it it, it says our our parish and it says the author, I don't remember how it's worded, but, and it's literally signed by um, Archbishop Dimitri. Um, And so this is, it is a document, it is the document that says the priest in possession of this has his um, his authority, the bishop's authority to celebrate the divine liturgy. Because ultimately it is the bishop who is the uh, not just the the um, not just the overseer, but, but ultimately the priest is uh, celebrating the divine liturgy as his proxy so during the divine liturgy whenever I say something to father uh, I say master bless I say, you know um, what else do I say, master bless it's usually master Master bless the incense or um, and, but that's usually what we would call the bishop but because he's acting in the, as a proxy for the bishop the deacon always refers to him as master um, so there's just little things like that that are kind of hidden from from most observation But but once you're a little bit more inside you might see these little things um, So I wanted to mention that yeah, so he's like the, the priest priest. Yes. Yes, very much. So um, in fact in ancient churches behind the altar um, There would be a circular bench or even depending on the size series of benches, right like a little tiny amphitheater thing going on, right? And all the priests would sit there to the sides and the bishop would sit in the middle. Um, and the deacons weren't allowed to sit, so. <laughs> um, or still not. So, um, but yes, he is essentially, and, and if you think about if we, the development, if you will, of, of how the church was structured, I think um, Frederica mentions that from very early on we definitely had structure, right? If you read the letters of St. Ath- uh, Ignatius, right, it's very clear that there is definitely structure already. Um, I mean, St. Paul is talking to Titus to teach him how to be a bishop, right? It's there right from the beginning. The Book of Acts. Exactly. Uh, So um, there's definitely structure. But yes, in the early days, it would have been um, the the whole church of the city would come together, and the bishop would preside, and he would be assisted by the priests and the deacons. And then eventually it got too big to all do in one building. So we're like, okay, well, the senior priest, you're going to go and serve the liturgy with my blessing over there. Right? And then that's, so we get this development of how that begins to meet the needs of the growing church. Right? Um, so it's this antimons then that is the, the document, if you will, know, the certification. And so if, like when we had liturgy outside during COVID, that went with us outside. When Father Stephen went and served in Kentucky at the camping trip, um, he actually went, I think he took a side trip over to Greenville because they had a spare antimons that he took with him to uh to kentucky it's this is serious stuff, and I think it's indicative of how in orthodoxy i'm trying to think of the way to put this well, Father's talked about it before like this is not just about what we think right we we take these things seriously um I mean could you go through the motions of a divine liturgy without the antimons? Well, I guess so. But why would you? Right? It's just kind of the, the perspective, like, that's that's not how you do it, right? That's, what? No. Um, and so, I, to me, it's indicative of how, how we take these sorts of things seriously. Not just, um, uh, it's not just stuff we think about. It's, it's the things that we do. In fact, it's more so the things that we do. Um, honestly, I don't care what you think about stuff. What I care is what you do, right? That's, that's what it comes down to, right? Okay, so that's my little sign. <laughs> um, so in this chapter, she talks about the uh, the proskamidi service, which is the preparation service. And, and if we roll the clock a little bit back more, there's the entrance prayers. Okay, so um, the clergy arrive early enough to be able to do these entrance prayers. And if you're familiar from your own daily prayers, perhaps of the Trisagion prayers, that sometimes called the usual beginning or... Uh, different phrases like that it essentially is that um, and I think if you look if you look at the ones for it might be the same one that's in a lot of prayer books for the um, evening prayers the, the the troparian in there are the same ones that we say at the entrance. Um, we venerate the icons, the, the two the Christ and, and Theotokos on the iconostos and then we kind of pray our way in right? Um, say we're saying a psalm as we go in, venerate the altar, and then, um, and then we begin vesting. And with each vestment that we put on, there's a prayer um, that we pray uh, as we're putting it on. Um, the deacon can't get vested on his own. Well, okay, yeah, that's true. Okay, so I, I can't. That's that's, if you will, that's a very practical reason why you don't have a deacon that would would serve a a vespers right that's it's a reader's vespers if if there's not a priest it doesn't suddenly become like this middle ground where now it's a deacon's vest that doesn't exist because without the priest there I can't act I can't do deacon things Um, I have to have his blessing to do that now occasionally we've done a typical service with a little bit of a some sensing and I do vest but I have his blessing to do all of that Um, and it's funny because these sorts of like regulations come directly out of abuses, as if you've studied any kind of history about things like this. Like there, there are canons about like the deacons have to; they can't, um, deacons aren't uh, can't aren't allowed to to um, give communion to priests. Well, you know that was coming about because some some uh, some deacons got all high and mighty and decided they were going to be the ones that that gave out all the communion. Like, no, 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 wait, come on, guys. So anyway. Um, that's why there's no such thing as like a deacon's vespers. It, it doesn't exist um, so the first thing I do is I get my vestments and I get them, uh, ble- ask Father's blessing and so then we we uh, say the prayers that go with each of the vestments and this happens a lot in orthodoxy where there'll be, the, the prayer is actually a lot of times like a quote from the psalms or like two or three psalm quotes kind of squished together that somehow mention what you're doing right they somehow directly uh, connect so for example um when we put on the the robe the first one my soul shall rejoice in the lord for he has clothed me with the garment of salvation and with a robe of gladness he has encompassed me as a bridegroom he has set a crown on me as a bride he has adorned me with a raiment. so right there i'm putting on my robe and i'm praying about the robe right um when i'm putting on the cuffs i'm i'm praying about the right hand of god and I think the other one is just the hand of God. Um, so, then we, having fully vested, then we began the, the actual um, preparation of uh, the gifts themselves. So, a lot of these things that she mentions or that you know, you'll read about, you know what they look like. You see what a chalice looks like. We bring the chalice out, right? Like, that's obvious. Um, but I, ha- I don't have enough, so you'll have to kind of share a little bit. These, ha- these are just some handouts, and I'll tell you what they are as we go through it. If you haven't seen a liturgical spear, that's what that—that's one of those is. They're all the same. I was just, all you the just, same. just uh, share them, yeah. maybe take one per row or something. Um, <clears throat> um, okay. So we have um, five loaves of bread. They're usually about this big. And they're just kind of bigger versions of the little ones that are in the back when you get here, right? They're about this big. Um, and one of them is chosen to become uh, the lamb, so, which is just what we call the part that's cut out for communion. So Father takes the, um, the lance, the spear, and with some prayers, each there's a, a prayer at each time, you. Can, it's actually a quote from Isaiah, um, he cuts the round loaf into a cube, um, leaving just that top, you can kind of see that picture, the top seal, right? And then, through then the, the next loaf begins taking out pieces for other, other commemorations. Right? The first one is the lamb. It is Christ. It will become communion itself. The rest of them are Commemorations for saints or our loved ones. Um, so the second one is for the Theotokos. Right? Um, and that's what that next little circle with all the triangles on it is. As he's preparing these things, that's how they get arranged on the plate, or pattern, which just means plate. So a lot of these words that sound cool in Greek just are boring. <laughs> which I kind of like, actually. Um, so the patent—that's how that gets arranged on the patent. I have a quote here I want to share in just a second that talks about if—if if only that center portion is becoming the Eucharist, what's going on with the other ones? Um, because the little breads in the back, if people write down their their um, names and send those up, um, all of those also get put on the patent. They are not going to become communion; they are added to the cup after communion. All of Everything that's on the plate besides the lamb is added at the end. After we go back in, we we put those in the chalice. So, let's see. When the celebrant takes out a particle of the prosphora, that's the little breads that are in the back, for a brother who is living, quote, because it is placed near the Eucharist bread, when that becomes the body of Christ in the course of the liturgy, the particle, too, is immediately (laughs) sanctified. And when it is placed in the chalice, it is united with the Holy Blood. That is why it transmits divine grace to the soul of the one for whom it is offered. So a spiritual communion takes place between that person and Christ. If the person commemorated is among the godly or those who have sinned but then repented, that person receives the communion of the Holy Spirit invisibly in his soul. So it's not a replacement for communion, but that's what's going on with these particles. Both the, the pieces uh, that we include for the Theotokos and the, the ranks of saints, the living and the dead, the me- commemorations we make, they, they go on, the, on the, the, the plate, the patent, with the the lamb that's going to become the Eucharist. They're on there when we do the great entrance. They're on there when I elevate the gifts. They're on there the whole time. Um, and, and hopefully by now, after having chapter on Know, relics and saints and things like that—that that doesn't doesn't sound too weird, because it is a little weird, right? Like somehow that just because I remember you with this little piece of bread and it's sitting next to the Jesus bread, like that's gonna be well, kinda, yeah. I mean, it's it does sound weird, but but that's that's what's going on. Did you say it gets put in the chalice? It does. So part. after, and this is something I didn't know until gosh, I've been Orthodox quite a while. Um, all of those commemorations. Um, for whatever reason I just assumed they were part of communion. I always wondered what happens? Where does that bread go? Um, um, They get after we finish communion and we take it back in, that's when those particles are added to the chalice. Which I mean, Orthodox try to be a little circumspect and, and let's say draw a veil of we don't want to over explain but because they are now in the chalice with the blood they become communion so um and then i consume them when i consume the gifts um so they're they're mingled if you you we could look at it that way all those particles after communion are mingled with the body and blood of christ um let's see and then that's the spear i wanted to give you a little picture the two pictures at the top because i like the one that diagram but you don't really get a sense of what's going on in that diagram without the, the actual photograph. That's it's a like a cube. Um, ours isn't quite that tidy oftentimes. But,
1: um, so when you guys process around, you're yes. carrying that plate with all.
2: Yeah, so things. Yeah. So I'm carrying spraying. the. They're all they're all on there. Yes, okay. and it, that's one of the reasons for the veils, right? I mean, obviously we would veil things as, as a. a um, out of respect or adoration, or like you know, but also there's a, always a practical reason for almost all of this stuff, right? We don't want these things flying off if the wind blows or or something, right? We keep the bugs off of them. So yeah, when I'm when I'm I'm carrying the chalice or the the, the patent with the the breads on there, um, including the Jesus bread. Yes, and it's on there the whole time. It yeah. it does not get added. Okay, so the lamb. That's that good question. So the lamb gets added to the chalice. Um, so you know, right right before communion, really, when um, I say uh, let us attend, and Father says holy things for the holy, right? And then we close the doors and like everything gets shut down, right? Um, that's when um, Father breaks
1: break master the holy, master the holy
2: bread, and he divides it and puts it, and one of them becomes one of the pieces. So it's you can't really tell from this picture, but. Um, if you look at the diagram, you can see that that, that seal has its it's quarter, right? So the, one of the things that happens, actually the last thing that happens before um, he puts it on, on the patent during the preparation is that it's cut in quarters all the way to the crust, right? Not all the way through, but but so that when he turns it back over, it looks whole, but he can it just easily breaks apart into four pieces. Um, and one of those pieces is uh, one goes directly into the chalice and and stays there and is at least in the slavic tradition not usually used for communion um usually the the, that piece is whole when i consider the guests. uh one piece is then divided for the clergy um and then and then the other two pieces are are cut up for communion for the laity. so um yeah so it's added right right before communion Um, and then hot hot water is added first, no, no, hang on, (laughs) okay, so, (laughs) um, first the, the, it's divided, right, and then the first piece goes in, the one that's just for the chalice. Since we have two chalices, he breaks that one in half and puts a piece in each chalice. Um, and then I add the hot water, um, which, it'd be best if it got to you, it was still hot, I know sometimes it's not, but that's just the way it goes um and then after so then um the clergy commune um first from the bread just in our hands and then out of the chalice so the clergy commune the gifts separately um like from each other not anyway so after that is when then we cut up the the last two pieces and put them into the chalice um so i mean this is why (laughs) there's a real practical reason again why the choir is singing these hymns because it takes us a few minutes to get all this stuff done and 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 because at this point this is the body of Christ, we can't just like be willy nilly back there like the Swedish chef, right? We've got to be careful <laughs> because we've got to keep track of these crumbs. These are this is the body of Christ. Um, I mean, this is this is it can be a, an ex, a reason for uh, reprimand for for um, discipline if you're careless with this sort of stuff. Depending on the bishop, even an accident. With the gifts, um, or with Eucharist, is gonna—you know—you're gonna have to take some time out, even if it's an accident, because you clearly weren't careful enough. Um, so, <clears throat> so it takes time to cut the stuff carefully and and put it in the chalice. Um, so,
1: just uh, if I could, yeah. Um, it, everything he's describing here is 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 done for a reason, like the words that accompany it. Uh, the words that are being said when the zion the hot water is poured in, into the chalice, uh, or or um, or when um, when the when the lamb is divided, I, I shouldn't I, I keep saying divided, broken is the lamb of God, always broken but never divided, never divided. always yeah. eaten but never consumed. Yeah, uh, that, that's the it, there, there there's there's a there's a deep from the very moment that that uh, that the service of proscomity begins with the preparation of the, everything there. Has a has a a, a, a a really deep spiritual purpose behind it. Um, I, I would
2: encourage you to read through that service. It's, I mean, occasionally, uh, it's been years and years and years since we've done it here. But occasionally, a parish will do like a teaching proskomeedia, where we'll just bring the table out and and do all this out in uh, in the nave where everybody can see. Because it's not like we're not trying to keep secrets. It's just like, that's where the stuff is, right? It's in the altar, that's where it lives, that's where it should live. But occasionally, um, we do... Like I said, it's been years and years since we've done that here, but, but that has been done where you would do a process. But it, even without seeing it, hey, you can find videos online, really good ones, of, of showing what this is. And, and I like, not in a sensationalist way, but it's like a really good like, showing you the steps. Um, but even just to read the prayers, like Peter Gregory said, each of these little steps has some sort of, of um, well, like I said, um, when he's making the initial cuts in the first loaf, it's it's from Isaiah. As a sheep he was led to the slaughter; as blameless lamb before its shears is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare his generation? Um, this is it's it's um, it's really moving. All of the, the way this preparation that happens. And in a, in a way, it's kind of a shame that, that usually you all don't get to see or hear any of this. Um, it's happening before most people are here, and, and that's okay. But I, I would encourage you, if you can, to, to read through these prayers and just, just even once get a sense of what, what they are, because every one of them um, has, has some connection to the action that's being taken. Like I mentioned, when we're vesting, like it's a quote about you know the right hand of God when I put on my right cuff, that sort of thing. Um, we don't have time today, but it's interesting uh, as, we, as he's taking the loaves, as the priest is taking the loaves and taking particles out of them, um, the, uh, the third loaf, and this is the Slavic tradition, oftentimes in, the, in a Greek kind of path tradition, uh, they use a single loaf and take all of these out of the single, single loaf. But in the Russian tradition, we do the five loaves. Um, or you could say like four, and, one and four. Um, so out of the third one is the all the ranks of saints, um, the Bap- John the Baptist, um, and then the prophets, and then uh, the apostles, and then we get to the same list of saints, almost exactly, that comes up at the litie that we do in a vigil. So if you've been here for one of the vigils. Where we, the clergy will come out in the kind of altar party, if you will, will come out to the narthex. Actually, we don't even have a narthex anymore. We'll come out somewhere under the drop ceiling and kind of line up. And I'll say this big, old, long list of of, na- of saints, like asking for their prayers, right? And it's <coughs> it's really long. All of those, I'm looking over the list right now. Not exactly all of them, but nearly all of them are also mentioned in <laughs> um, in in the prayers of the Proskomite, they're, they're commemorated with a particle that's taken out um, at those prayers. And this is one of those places where uh, it varies according to kind of the, the location, the geography, right? So um, I'm, I'm betting that say, I don't know, on Crete, they probably don't commemorate St. Raphael of Brooklyn in the Proskomite prayers, right? They they may love him, but but he's not one that they would commemorate. But he is in ours. Um, Saint Tikhon of Moscow. right? say so, you know th- those the kind of founders here in America. We definitely remember those guys. <laughs> um, some of them are are newer. Like um, I think Juliana of is, is in here. I know she's in the um, I know she's in the the Liti prayers. But um, like uh, Great Prince Vladimir. You know, Princess Olga. Like they don't it's remember the those in other places, right? That, but so that's that's one of the ways that this the geography affects these these saints that we remember. We love all our saints, but we have some favorites, right? And that's okay. They, saints don't get jealous of each other. It's okay. <laughs> um. So in the um and this is obvious in some of the some of the ways that this is done, like. Oftentimes, so it's always done on a table, and, and sometimes the table is just called the proscomedy or table of oblation or preparation. Prothesis is another word that's used. There's a lot of these. It all just means preparation, right? That's that's what we're doing at all, or oblation, table of offering, right? Um, but oftentimes at that table, there's an icon in the Nativity. And that's a very intentional connection between Christ incarnate, right, at the Nativity, and what we're beginning on the table. We are beginning the steps of Christ becoming incarnate in the, blood, the, the bread and wine, the body and blood, right here, right before us. It doesn't really, the anaphora is where you could say it's completed, it's fulfilled, but it's certainly beginning right here with these prayers. And so, um, I didn't do a picture of it, but um, the covers on the pattern, right, there's the, the fabric ones, but underneath that is a metal one. It's a four-armed thing, right? That's um, called the asterisk, which is a fancy word for star, right? <laughs> so, but, as that star is goes on to the pattern, uh, the prayer is, let me get to it real quick. Uh, and the star came and stood over the place where the young child was. We're directly connecting these things. Right. Obviously there's a connection with the crucifixion as well, because I mean, we have already done the, the, the from Isaiah, the the sections about this you know, the the uh, suffering servant. Um, so sacrifice is the Lamb of like, God. Like we've got the we've got the the, the, the crucifixion there, but it, there's a definite connection between what we're doing at the table of oblation, between this proscomite service and uh, and and thinking of it as like this is Bethlehem, and I think I think um, Frederica mentions that in the chapter as well that there's a there's a, a through line between Nativity and what we're doing at this table. Um, so that's really practical stuff about what's happening there. I think some of the takeaways on this are that <coughs> you know as Orthodox. Um, it's, it's Okay, forgive me, but it's like that the meme, the, the yo-dog meme, like, I, I heard you like to pray, so we're going to pray before we pray so that we can pray when we pray, right? That's my version of that, but like as Orthodox, like we really like to pray, and so before we pray, we're going to pray, and then after we pray, we're going to pray that we prayed, right? And so this is, like, you can't even really say it starts here. It started last night at, at Vespers or Vigil. Um, but this is the prayers before the prayer. This is this is when the, the clergy arrive to, to prepare all the, if you will, the things that need to be prepared for the liturgy itself. But the takeaway from that is we should always be preparing. We should prepare for uh, for divine liturgy, especially. Um, I, I think one of the things about the Sunday morning, if you can, the hours are a gift. Arriving during the hours are a gift because they become this... So the narthex, we don't have one really right now, but when we have one, that's kind of like the antechamber or the, the, the entryway, if you will, or the lobby. It's the green room before you get into the, the show, right? In a sense. Right? Yeah, maybe, right? That's where you buy your candles and... Right? That's the, that's the narthex. That's, you know... Um, I, I really would say that the hours are are if you will a spiritual narthex. They're a place you can begin to enter in. You can and I know with little kids that's tough. I had I used to have children, small children as well, so I know that's tough, but the hours are really a gift to be able to begin to enter slowly um to, to start to get your heart and your racing mind into the right place um, as we, we prepare it. for liturgy. Yeah. Like
1: acclimated? Yeah, acclimated,
2: sure. Um, To begin to prepare, to hear the words, um, I would recommend a book by St. Nicholas Cabot called, I think it's just Commentary on the Divine Liturgy. And he steps through how each of these things, um, a way how each of these these, um, parts of the liturgy, can work on our hearts to prepare us to to enter us into closer and closer communion with God. Um, it's it's a again it's a very pr- on one level it's a very practical kind of book. He um, doesn't I mean if you can say that she is practical but but it's it's not um, it doesn't go on chapters and you know pages and pages about one particular little um, point. He really just says this is for this and this this is how we prepare and think about how this prepares you for that and uh, it's it's really good that way so. Uh, that's that's a good one to begin uh, thinking about how you can prepare for divine liturgy. Um, I was going to see how much time I actually have left, because I don't want to Oh, just a few minutes. Okay. Um, before we go, last chapter and this chapter. It's re- interesting that I noticed Frederica referenced Holy Friday um, in both chapters, hymns from both. Um, and she ends with the 15th antiphon of the Matins of Holy Friday. I looked, i <sighs> it was too long for me to play for you guys, right? I wanted to play a version of it. It's a little long, and I think if I played it, we'd all just start feeling awkward after a few minutes listening to this. But, um, <laughs> it is you know, sometimes there's, a, there's this kind of, um, I don't know, received, uh, wisdom It's not really wisdom, but, the, you know, that, like, this, this church over here, they didn't really know how to do the, the resurrection. And this church over here, they're really good at Christmas. And this church over here, this tradition is really good at the, the crucifixion. And usually Orthodox gets lumped into the, you know, they're really good at celebrating uh, Easter, Pascha. Like, oh, yeah, Ooh, we love Pascha. But we're <laughs> here on the mountains of Holy Friday. I'll show you that we really also know how to do the crucifixion. Um, and this fifteenth antiphon is, um, is probably very very ancient. Um, certainly, the the you find almost exactly the same phrases in a really really old uh, work by Melidio of Sardis, um, which is very very early, really really early. Um, and it's in the the last uh, it's it's like the last page in, in in this chapter. And I just wanted to end with this. and I know this like goes way. <laughs> This is taking a left turn from everything else I've talked about. But there's something about this hymn that I think really addresses how orthodoxy, um, and I I would say it also we can connect it to to fasting, in that orthodoxy continually holds up two things and lives in the tension of them, right? So we had the, the idea of this legalistic version of fasting and this like, Fasting is for monks, or I'm fasting by eating fifty Oreos, right? <laughs> those are that's stupid. Both of those are stupid, right? That's that's <laughs> not. I mean, come on. We know, we know, right? Aristotle knew this, right? Right? And to in the Nicomachean Ethics, right? It's the virtue of the mean, right? Um, the Church also finds taking two things and holding them in tension that the actual place in the tension between them is is really where the truth is, and this hymn is. I encourage you to come for this hymn. It's it's always amazing. It's just uh, anyway. So I'm just going to read it real quick. And like I said it's the 15th Annavon of the Matins of Holy Friday. So we are in the middle of the service we are re- through the course of the service we're reading selections from the gospel um, that are telling the whole story. I mean we read like half the book of John because it's all about we're reading all of the story of the crucifixion. Um and right at the point where we bring out the cross this is the, the, the hymn that's sung. Today he who hung upon the earth excuse me. Today he who hung upon the oh, that's a bad I'm married out of the book. That's a bad copy paste error, sorry. He <laughs> who hung the heavens above the earth. Yeah, I don't Okay. Today he who hung the world upon the waters is hung upon a tree. He who is king of the angels is crowned with thorns. He who robes the sky with clouds is robed in purple mockery. He who set Adam free in Jordan's waters is slapped on the face. He who calls the church's bride is nailed to a cross. He who is born of the virgin is pierced with a spear. We worship your passion, O Christ. We worship your passion, O Christ. We worship your passion, O Christ. Show us also the glory of your resurrection. Um, that one, boy, slapped on the face. Whoo, sorry. I, every time I hear that one, it just, it just nails me. Um, hmm. Any questions about any of this or anything at all? Actually, I, I, I told Father Daniel I was going to, um, because this was a fairly practical chapter. I would also open up for any kind of practical questions about you know, anything. See that we're like, what is that thing over there? What are they doing over there?
1: Any questions? Or one, one observation, just based on what what uh, we've covered today, um, talking about the preparation for for uh, the uh, the Holy Oblation and for the Divine Liturgy. One thing that is a really good way to prepare that that uh, that, that my family has done before um, is 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 baking the parathra loaves. Mm-hmm. They they call it the Holy Korban and the Church that, that I came from, but I I remember one time I was sitting at the computer and and uh, and and I heard my wife talking to my daughters in the next room in the kitchen, and and she was teaching them how to bake the the prosera. and uh, the prayers that you say while you make that, and the now we pray for those who we love, and we press the seal down into the in, into the uh, into the dough to make to imprint it. Um, it, it's it's really a way that the laity can can be involved and 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 uh in participation, like when I was chrismated into the church myself, uh well the loaf that was used uh, was the one my wife my wife baked. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a it's a there there are people here in the parish that, that know how to do that and be happy to work with you on that.
2: And and <clears throat> I mean we we're d- detached from it largely today because of well the stuff that father was talking about earlier but but this whole preparation is really the preparation of the gifts of the people like in one way or another the wine and the bread have been provided by the people right usually the wine is just money and then we order it from the monastery in california but someone in the parish has baked the bread today it was brad rogers so um he just recently learned how to do that so um this 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 is where we talk about you know returning the gifts of God. Bring we bring our gifts and, and God blesses them and, and He gives them back to us. Um, this this committee or this this prothesis or oblation is all. Um, that's where that's kind of the, the center of where that begins. So any other any qu- like questions or no, I know I went pretty quick. Yeah, Matthew. Uh, demystifying words oblation. Yes, uh, offering. Yeah, some words I don't like to demystify sometimes, because I think it, it and I, this is not, I'm not picking on you, but th- because I think it'd be better to learn what we're talking about, right? And, and sometimes it's okay to have kind of foreign sounding words in our vocabulary. Um, it, it can make us pause and go, oh, what is that thing Yeah. Oh, okay. Like, we could call it the bread box, <laughs> right? But artyklosia sounds a lot better, right? That's the Greek, it just means bread box. But the tabernacle that sits on the altar where the reserved sacrament is, like in English we would be the bread box. That's that sounds boring. Right? Um so, you know. Um but yeah, so I'm 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 happy to demystify words too though. Yeah. If if I haven't actually introduced myself to you, I apologize. Um, I'm kinda shy, so there's that. Um but but I'll be happy to you know, say hi. And I think I know almost everyone's name, maybe. But I probably have forgotten it, so yeah. I read something that said um, uh, these doctors just study that uh, not only is Orthodox fasting beneficial for you spiritually, it's like the healthiest way of, of fasting you, you, you can do. That's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions or thoughts or comments? Alright, well, um, if, like I said, if I haven't reached myself, please come up and grab me and and I'll uh, say hi. Um, I think, let's let's end with prayer here, and I don't have this one memorized, forgive me. Lord now, lettest thou thy servants depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes, have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people israel Amen. amen
1: no, that 's the uh,